everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. We've got another great show for you this week. I've got a lot of news to catch you up on and got another little tip of the week for you. Uh, let's see, let's go start off with some news from Apple. Uh, they're taking some heat for moving their security keys to China. Uh, not for everybody, just for Chinese um, subscribers. I'll tell you about that in a second. Uh, and also, did you know that you can see all of your snail mail online? And uh, the funny thing is, maybe other people can too. Uh, Firefox has an update coming up that's going to add some even more privacy settings for your browser. Uh, that'll be good. Uh, also, the next version of Android is going to increase your privacy as well. I'll tell you about that. And finally, with our tip of the week, we're going to talk a little bit about Facebook's new facial recognition feature and why you might want to be turning that one off. All right, let's start out with Apple. So Apple's been in the news. Uh, of course, they're almost always in the news, but uh, they were in the news for some negative press here recently because a lot of uh, privacy advocates and um, folks that are worried about oppressive regimes like China can be uh, are worried that Apple has decided to move the encryption keys for their iCloud uh, service uh, to uh, China. China, this is actually in response to um, uh, new laws in China that requires this. And, you know, I guess if you think about it, if the the U.S. would probably want this too, right? If the U.S. wanted access to these uh, encryption keys for the iCloud data storage, which is can be uh, all sorts of information about somebody, um, when you're backing your things up to iCloud, if the law enforcement comes knocking, you would think the U.S. would want access to that stuff as well and not want that data stored off, let's say, in Switzerland or someplace that might, you know, would make it a lot harder for U.S. law enforcement to uh, to serve a warrant. It's the same thing in China. But, you know, nevertheless, we <laughs> we tend to think in the U.S. that China's bad and we are good. Uh, so, you know, when, when, when Apple does this for another country, um, you know, it's <laughs> some people look down on it. <clears throat> so let, you know, let's dig into this a little bit. So this I thought this was interesting. Matthew Green is a security researcher at John, Johns Hopkins, uh, has what he calls the mud puddle test. Um, and this test is to, is to determine who controls access to your cloud storage uh, data. Uh, and, it go, and it goes something like this. Matthew says in his blog, he says, you don't have to dig through Apple's terms of service to determine how they store their encryption keys. There's a much simpler approach that I call the mud puddle test. Step one, first, drop your device in a mud puddle. Two, next, slip in said puddle and crack yourself on the head. When you regain consciousness, you'll be perfectly fine, but you won't for the life of you be able to recall your device, passwords, or keys. Step three, now try to get your cloud data back. <laughs> so then he goes on to say, did you succeed? If yes, you're screwed. Or to be a little less dramatic, I would say your cloud provider has access to your encrypted data, as does the government if they want, if they want it as does any rogue employee who knows their way around your provider's internal policy checks. And it goes without saying, so does every random attacker who can guess your recovery information or compromise your provider's servers. So his mud puddle test is kind of a long way around of a, uh, the other way I've often heard this test, and that is to, uh, you know, if you've got some something stored up in the cloud and you, f you quote unquote forget your password or you claim that you forget your password, call them up and say, hey, I've forgotten my password. Can you get my data back? And if they say yes... If they say, uh, you know, we can we could get your data back or here's your password, uh, then what that means is that you don't really control your encryption. They do. Uh, because if you are in full control of uh, the data you've encrypted in the cloud, then you have the key. And if that key is lost, that data is lost. It is so scrambled, nobody can get it back. That's the way it's supposed to be. 
you know, at least if you're paranoid, that's the way it's supposed to be. So um, anyway, let, let me get back to the story here with Apple. And uh, A couple of quotes here from uh, different sources. So one is from Reuters. It says, um, quote, Apple says the move is required by recent legislation mandating that cloud services available to Chinese citizens are run by Chinese companies operating locally. Previously, the encryption keys were stored stateside, meaning anyone who wished to access iCloud data with, without the assistance of the user would need to go through the U.S. legal system. Now Chinese authorities will be able to run requests directly through their own legal system, unquote. So that's kind of what I was saying at the beginning. It, you know, it may seem a little nefarious, but it's really not. I mean, it's, it's a matter of sovereignty, I guess, maybe is a way to put it. Um, but uh, one more thing, and this is from a tech country. TechCrunch article. Uh, let me read you this part, so because it's got some important implications if you really follow it through. So, again, from TechCrunch, it says, "Quote: While iMessage communications are encrypted on the sender's phone and decrypted on the recipient's, quote, Apple uploads a backup of your phone data to iCloud if you activate iCloud during the iPhone onboarding process. That means iMessages that haven't been deleted are also stored on Apple's iCloud servers in a form that could potentially be accessed by authorities." Unquote. So what, let's unpack that. So the bottom line is here, uh, and, and one of the reasons I bring this up, is that it's important to note what iCloud really is. So iCloud is a really convenient service offered by Apple that allows you to store things up in the cloud, up in the internet, on servers that Apple owns, which is great for synchronizing things across different, uh, different devices, like your laptop and your iPhone and your iPad. Um, it's very convenient if you happen to lose your device and you want to get all that data back. Uh, when you get a new device, you can restore from iCloud, and it's just like it never left. That's all well and good. That's all good stuff. But you've got to realize that even though in this particular case they're calling out iMessages, which are fairly secure, um, they are encrypted end-to-end, -end, which means that as they go through Apple servers uh, and through the Internet in general, uh, nobody else can decrypt those messages. They're private between you and the person you're sending them to. Um, now, there's some caveats there, but the, the point, that I'm, the caveat I'm bringing up here is that if you back up uh, your iPhone to iCloud, which is an option that they push at you every time you do an upgrade on iPhone, would you like to activate iCloud Drive? And if you say no, they say, oh, are you sure? <laughs> it's, really, it's really a pain, actually. You've got to say no twice to disable that. So a lot of people, by default, have turned that on. And what that means is... You know, you've got the convenience of all these things being backed up to the cloud. But if you're paranoid at all about, you know, somebody getting access to your data, that data is now stored somewhere besides your phone. Um, and it's stored in the cloud. And it's stored with keys that Apple controls. So unlike your phone itself or your computer, if you're backing up your phone to your computer, which is what I do, I do not back up my phone to the cloud. I do synchronize some things through the cloud, like contacts and things like that. That's just very convenient. I'm not too worried about that. But for like all my messages and things like that, I want to keep those private. So I do not back up my data and do not back up my photos and do not back up my messages and all these things to iCloud. Uh, I back them up to my local computer at home. Uh, and those I have full control over. And those are fully multiply encrypted and only I have the keys. Um, so anyway, this whole thing about China moving the keys, uh, uh, Apple moving the encryption keys for iCloud stuff from the U.S. servers to Chinese servers brings up this topic. And I just want to make sure we cover that so people understand what the implications are for everybody uh, when you're thinking about storing your stuff in iCloud and how private that data really is. All right. And next up, the U.S. Postal Service has a new way for you to view your snail mail before you even get it in your mailbox. Um, now, they've been doing this for a while. Uh, the Postal Service, if you're not aware, actually scans your 
snail mail, the actual physical letters and things that you get um, in their system. And I'm sure a lot of it has to do with just um, optical recognition so they can figure out how to automatically sort some of these things. Uh, but they're also saving some of that information. Um, and I don't know how long they save it for. I mean, I, I don't even know if that's public knowledge. But they have opened the service up to you, the user, as well. So if you went to the U.S. Postal Service and signed up for the service, you can actually see um, uh, front and back scans of your, your snail mail uh, technically before you even get it and also see stuff that uh, you have recently gotten. And maybe you'll find something that you were supposed to receive that you didn't. It's interesting. It's an interesting service called Informed Delivery. Uh, the problem with this is, is that it's not terribly secure in terms of who can sign up for this. So, um, let me read you an article here from Krebs on security. Krebs is, um, Brian Krebs is a really, um, top-notch security researcher and has a great blog. Uh, and he exposes these kind of things all the time. So let me just read a little bit from his article. Quote, the USPS recently told this publication that would, of course would be Brian Krebs that beginning February 16th, it started alerting all households by mail whenever anyone signs up to receive these scanned notifications of mail delivered to that address. The notification program, dubbed Informed Delivery, includes a scan of the front of each envelope destined for a specific address each day. Signing up requires an eligible resident to create a free user account at usps.com, which asks for the resident's name, address, and an email address. The final step in validating residents involves answering four so-called knowledge-based authentication, or KBA, questions. The USPS told me, that's Brian Krebs, it uses two ID proofing vendors, LexisNexis, and naturally, recently breached Big Three Credit Bureau Equifax to ask the magic KBA questions, rotating between them randomly. Okay, so these knowledge-based authentication questions, these KBAs, you've probably seen these if you've ever requested your credit report or um, sometimes you're applying for credit cards. And, you know, and they will ask you like four questions. Okay, four multiple choice questions. You may or may not have once lived at one of these addresses or on or about this year, you may have opened up a credit line or you have a mortgage with this company and they give you five choices, one of which is none of the above. And those none of the above does happen sometimes. And the idea being that only you would know the answer to those questions. Now, the problem with that is that there's a lot of this stuff you can find out from other places like Zillow.com or just looking at people's Facebook posts, you know, places they used to live, uh, cars they used to have, you know, might give them a clue about, you know, when you might have got a new mortgage. Maybe they talked about having to apply. Um, and of course, the massive Equifax breach that we had last year. And by the way, they just bumped their number of affected accounts from... Uh, up to 147 million. They they recently apparently discovered that, oh, yeah, there were 2.4 million more people <laughs> that were affected. So anyway, the point is, it's, it's actually kind of a convenient service. I tried it out myself. It's really kind of neat. You can look back and see, I think it at least goes back a week, uh, including today. So I guess technically you could look and see what mail was bound for your mailbox today before you get it. Uh, and little black and white scans, they're not super clear, but they're clear enough. You can t kind of tell what they are. Um, and it'll show you uh, the letters and, and pieces of mail that are bound for your mailbox uh, that day. And for the last few days, you can go back and look on a per day basis and see what your mail was. That might be kind of nice if you're out of town or um, you're traveling and you want to kind of see what mail you've been getting. So anyway, the bottom line is this. It's actually kind of a cool service. It's called Informed Delivery. You can sign up for it yourself at USPS.com. Uh, it's really kind of neat to be able to check out the, your mail. Maybe sometimes there might be interesting use case for that. But the important thing is, is that it's not terribly well secured um, 
but the U.S. Postal Service has recognized this, perhaps at the prompting of Brian Krebs, who contacted him about it last fall. Uh, and now they will at least be mailing out notices to say, hey, someone's watching your, someone's watching your mail. Uh, and if that person is not you, then you can uh, contact the USPS and see if you can get that stopped. Um, the other thing is you might want to just sign up for it. I, I'm hoping that if you sign up for it, I did. I just can't remember if this was available on the website or not. Uh, and see who else might be signed up for that service. Uh, basically, preemptively sign up for this account. Make sure that you're the one that opened that account uh, and you have control of that account. Uh, and that way you can see if anybody else might have signed up for this. All right. And next up, uh, Firefox, uh, my browser of choice. Uh, there are plenty of good browsers out there. Actually, Safari is pretty good, and Opera has got some good features. There's a Brave browser that's kind of interesting. I would avoid Internet Explorer. I would definitely avoid Chrome, at least if you're worried about privacy. Um, uh, I've been uh, really happy with Firefox, especially the new Firefox Quantum. Uh, it's very fast. It's uh, very slick. But at the end of the day, they're just a lot less conflict of interest with Firefox. They, you know, they're not an advertising company like Google. Uh, therefore, Chrome really has zero incentive to not track everything they can about you. Anyway, Firefox 59, which is uh, 58, I think, is the current version. So 59 should be coming out here shortly. Ha has an interesting new privacy feature um, that uh, it's a little bit technical, but you allow me to explain. Um, whenever you're using the web, uh, you're using a what we call a protocol called HTTP or Hypertext Transfer Pro Protocol. That's, you know, when you look up in your browser and you, you enter HTTP colon slash slash blah, blah, blah. Um, that is telling your browser to go to that website. That address you're giving it is called a URL or a universe, uh, universal resource locator, an URL, uh, as we call it. So when you're entering that address and you're using HTTP, there's all sorts of stuff going on behind the scenes, and part of that is your browser contacting that far-end server, let's say Amazon.com uh, or whatever it is, your whatever website you're going to. They give that website certain bits of information about you and your browser to help them give you a, the proper response back. So it'll tell you things like what kind of browser you're using, what kind of computer you're on, maybe what time zone you're in. Uh, it might give you your screen size. So if they're going to send you back an image, it'll be optimized for how big your screen is, what fonts you have installed, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and by the way, uh, the fact that it gives up so much information while trying to be helpful, uh, actually is just another way to help the web identify who you are. Because if you give out this long laundry list of information to the server you're going to, there's a high chance that information is very unique. Uh, you know, the finding this, you know, finding anyone else with the exact same combination of those exact settings is small. That's called uh, browser fingerprinting. Uh, if you want to check into that, go to a website from the EFF called Panopticlick, and that's spelled P-A-N-O-P-T-I-C-L-I-C-K. Panopticlick, uh, and what they will do is they will run a test on your browser, and they will tell you uh, how unique your web browser is and which factors are making it the most unique. And again, what that really allows the website you're going to is to figure out, hey, I've seen this guy before. Anyway, so back to um, the Firefox 59 change. So uh, one of the things that your website tells the server you're going to, when you go to Amazon.com, it has this thing called a, a referrer header. And it's classically misspelled. <laughs> it's R-E-F-E-R-E-R. -E -E of course, when you really spell that word, it's R-E-F-E-R-R-E-R. -E -R -R -E -R. There's two R's in there. Um, but it's... It's one of those classic webisms. It's been misspelled since day one. So anyway, there's this thing called a header, a referrer header that it sends to the website. And along with all this other information I tell you about, it tells you about the last website you came from. So it's kind of connecting the dots. 
So if you go to Amazon.com, but the previous place you were on was BestBuy.com, then Amazon knows, hey, you just came in from Best Buy. Um, you know, maybe that means something to them, maybe not. But the other important thing to remember is it's not just BestBuy.com that it gets. Uh, when you're on a website, if you look uh, up at the up at your address bar, it doesn't just say BestBuy.com usually. If you've started surfing around and you've gone into, I don't know, lighting and fixtures and you're looking for, you know, ceiling lamps or something like that. A lot of times the URL that you're on will have all that information in it. You're like drilling down kind of into like a folder structure uh, as you're going through the website. Furthermore, sometimes when you fill out forms and you put in information, that uh, information is put into the address bar as well. You'll see like a little question mark and you'll say like name equals carry and um, I don't know, whatever parameters you might have filled in. Sometimes the way a website passes that information on is in the address. So if you were to take that address and click and paste it somewhere else, uh, you'd get the exact same results. But that referrer header includes all that information. So here's just as an example, a classic one before they fixed it, uh, the ushealthcare.gov site, which had all sorts of problems when it first came out. Um, and one of them was this. If you looked, if you looked at one of the uh, addresses from from healthcare.gov after you've kind of gone through and signed up, it contains all sorts of information about you. Let me just read. So it would be HTTPS colon slash slash. Now the S told you it's it's um, encrypted, but look at all the other information that's going to be in this URL. So it's, you know, www.healthcare.gov slash C plans, blah, 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 some results. And then it has question mark. And as soon as you see that question mark, everything after that, these are the key value pairs that it that it passes on from things that it's learned about you and things that it wants to make the next website uh, available. So county equals blah, blah, blah. Age equals, this is an example I pulled off the web, so this is not me. Age, you know, county equals 04019. Age equals 40. Smoker equals 1. Pregnant equals 1. Zip equals 85601. State equals Arizona. Income equals 35,000. All that information is built right in to the address, uh, the address bar. And so if, if the next site you go to um, is some site that might benefit, you know, from that information, Facebook or whatever, they've just handed all that information to them. You're pregnant, you're a smoker, here's your income, here's where you live. If it didn't know that already, it knows that now. Now, I believe healthcare.gov has since fixed that. But the, that's an example of the kind of information that's contained in the referrer header in HTTP. So when you go from one website to another, all that information is given to the next website. So here's what Fit Firefox 59 is going to do about that. When you're in private browsing mode, and unfortunately, it's only when you're in private browsing mode, uh, it will strip all that information down to the bare minimum. So uh, if if it had all that info I just talked about and you went uh, to the next website, it would strip that all back to healthcare.gov, and that's all they would see. So they would still know where you came from the website at least, but they wouldn't get all the details of what you may have been doing on that website and any information you may have passed to that website. So you'd think that was something we would have figured out a long time ago. I think it's a great idea. The only problem, there will be some websites that count on having that information and like that's how they make things work. Uh, I believe that when you're going within a given website, it doesn't strip that off. So it's only when you go to a new website, a whole different website that it strips that information off. But there still may be like some websites that chain that information together. And that's kind of how they work. Like, you know, they gather some initial information and they send you to a partner website and they pass that information through uh, via that referrer header. Some of those things may break, but those guys just need to figure out a better way to do it because generally speaking, you should not be passing that information on. And in Firefox 59, which will be coming out shortly, uh, it will give you the option to turn that off. 
All right, one more quick story before we get on to our tip of the week. Uh, and that is the new version of Android. Uh, as you may know, if you're an Android user, Android likes to give alphabetical names, sequential alphabetical names to their different uh, versions, major versions of releases. Um, you know, they had Marshmallow and Nougat and Oreo and what was the one after? Well, P is the next one, right? So the letter P is the next one. I don't think they've named it yet. So Android version P, whatever that's going to be. Um is going to come with uh, some new privacy protections, and that will be to restrict the use of the microphone and the camera only to the application that is in the foreground, which is, in other words, when you're on your phone, you've launched an app, it's the app that you're looking at right now. So, you know, let's say you went to Facebook, and then you went to Amazon, and then you went to Google, and then you went to, I don't know, Netflix. Um, Netflix would, at that point, Netflix would be the foreground application and Facebook and all those others would be background applications. They'd be running somewhere in the background, but they're not active. Um, nevertheless, depending on how the permissions were set up, when you, when you install those applications, if you gave them access to your mic and your camera, Facebook in the background could still be using the mic and the camera until, that is, the next version of Android, which is going to shut that down, or at least give you the option to shut that down. So that's, that's great. That should have been done a long time ago, and it's good that they're doing it. Uh, and by the way, I believe that iOS does this already. You have to be a foreground app in order to use the mic or the camera. So that's a good feature. It'll be coming out in, in the next version of Android. And uh, I'm really glad to see that these sorts of things are finally starting to get locked down. All right. Now, our final story, which ends up being our tip of the week as well, uh, is about Facebook. And Facebook has, if you haven't noticed already, implemented a new facial recognition uh, program uh, feature. Uh, and you may have seen a pop-up uh, on your phone or uh, on your Facebook account that reads something like this. Introducing face recognition for more features. Hi, we're always working to make Facebook better, so we're adding more ways to use face recognition besides just suggesting tags. For example, face recognition technology can do things like find photos you're in but haven't been tagged, help protect you from strangers using your photo, Tell people with visual impairments who's in your photo or video. You control facial recognition. This setting is on, but you can turn it off at any time, which applies to features we may add later. So this is a pop-up you may have seen recently. I guess it's a feature they added last December. Facebook has been using facial recognition for a long time, but uh, supposedly, until recently, all they really used it for was to make suggestions to you about who you might want to tag in a photo. Now, of course, they're using it for more. And... Well, you know, the intentions always sound good, you know, sure. Hey, I would kind of like to know if, you know, someone's using a photo that, uh, that I'm in, uh, maybe somebody I don't even know, uh, maybe they're trying to pretend to be me, or maybe somehow someone got a picture of me and I don't want them to have a picture of me. So, you know, or, you know, maybe, you know, somebody who's visually impaired and yes, it'd be really nice if they were able to use this feature to find me in a photo when they really can't see me very well. So the problem is, as with all of these technologies is they've got it's a, it's a double-edged sword. And the real problem is that the people that want to use these features, namely, in this case, Facebook, wants to know everything about you and everybody on the planet. So while on the surface, they're offering uses of this capability that might be beneficial to you, you've also got to realize that what they're, what they're doing in the background is they're collecting as many facial recognition photos of, of you as possible and everybody else. They want this massive database of people so that they can find you in any photo. Um, whether someone else recognizes that you're in that photo or not, it will recognize you in that photo. And they 
who knows whatever they might use this for in the future. Uh, they're just snarfing up all this data. And personally, that just creeps me the hell out. So, so um, there's an article in Wired magazine about this, and it kind of brings this home. So let me, let me quote this article from Wired. It says, even in this renewed push to incorporate face recognition, people in Canada and the European Union won't have access to the features at all because those regions have regulations about how companies can collect and store biometric data. At the same time, Facebook has encountered legal challenges to its face recognition use in the U.S. For example, a San Francisco federal judge said on Monday that a class action lawsuit over Facebook's collection and retention of biometric data can proceed. Observers also note that limited face recognition applications for users doesn't necessarily mean that Facebook as a company isn't deriving a larger benefit from all the biometric face data it gathers. As a public company, if Facebook can find opportunities to monetize the data or harness it to fuel user growth, it will take them. There's a quote in here from... Uh, somebody at Northwestern says, quote, Facebook users need to realize that they are being actively nudged towards the use of biometrics. That makes exercising choice even more important because the inertia of modern social media is to get you to disclose more and more and build an environment that keeps facilitating that, unquote. And given the way Facebook handled the latest expansion of face recognition use, it's safe to assume that if you opt in today, you're also opting in to whatever comes next. So I think that's a good sentiment from Wired. So my point of bringing this up is that they are doing this and that you should have the option to opt out and you probably should take that, at least if you're concerned about privacy. I know I would. I don't think the uh, the benefits outweigh the risks. So uh, here's how you here's how you can do that. And of course, you can always go to the show notes. So there's a link there too, and I'll tell you what it's got, uh, send you to an article that has lots of nice pictures and stuff. Um, and I'll just tell you quickly how to do it here, but uh, if you can remember it. Otherwise, go to the show notes on the website for America Hot Loud for this podcast, uh, and you'll find a link there with all the info. On the Facebook app, you go to the More menu, the little dot, 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 More menu. Uh, there's a thing, an option there called View Privacy Shortcuts. Go to that. There's a More Settings option under there. Under there, there's a settings called Face Recognition, and then you can go into there and turn that off. Uh, on the web, it looks like it's a little easier. You go into Settings. Uh, on the web, which is under the little those little triangle menu in the upper right, you click on that and it brings down the thing. You can go to settings, and then on the left hand side, you'll see face recognition there, and you can turn that off. Now, note that I didn't see face recognition when I went there. That's because I think I've already turned on, uh, turned off enough of privacy stuff that they didn't even bother. <laughs> so I think I've already locked down my face down face Facebook account to the point where that's um, something else is already blocking uh, the facial recognition from be, even being an option on my account. So if you don't see it, that's probably what it is, and that's probably a good thing. That means your privacy settings are already locked down enough that you're not even giving that option. All right, and that's going to wrap it up this week. Uh, just a couple more uh, show notes for you here. Um, sign up for the newsletter if you haven't already. Uh, there's a lot of great information there, and uh, sometimes uh, uh, there's tips of the week and, and uh, that I put in the newsletter. Uh, that I don't always cover here. So, and uh, check that out. Also, sometimes the newsletter has got a little bit more information in it, or it's got uh, links that you can follow with more information. Uh, it's kind of just, just a different way to present the same info. I do tend to cover some of the same topics uh, in the tip of the week here as I do on the newsletter, uh, but they're not always the same. Um, you can also check the same things out on my blog. I've been trying to blog the same entries. So if you missed the newsletters or haven't signed up yet and you want to kind of see the things that I've put in previous newsletters, the blog entry is usually the long form version. I try to keep the newsletter very short and sweet and kind of more to the point. Um, uh, whereas the blog entries tend to go into a little bit more detail, with a little bit more background. Uh, so you can check either of those out, um, check the newsletter out and go to the website, firewallsdontstopdragons.com. You can find both of them there, the newsletter as well as the blogs. 
I am going to be uh, slowing down the newsletter. I used to do it on a weekly basis. I'm going to start doing that on a bi-weekly basis now. Uh, so twice a month, you'll be getting the newsletters. If you want more urgent news, you can always follow me on Twitter. Uh, you can find my Twitter handle again on America Out Loud on my page there, or you can look me up as Firewall Dragons on Twitter. Uh, that tends to be more technical info, but it's also more up-to-the-minute info. So if you want the latest and greatest and uh, most urgent news, that's the best way to follow that. And lastly, I'll just say that, um, you know, all these things I'm, I'm doing because I believe in this cause and I want to educate as many people as possible. Uh, I usually refer to it as inoculating people because the more people that do these kind of things to protect themselves, the more safe we all are, even if not everybody does it. Um, but we do need to spread the word. We need to reach as many people as possible. So tell your friends, tell your family, uh, find, you know, whatever, whatever method of information works out best for them. If they like the podcast, if they like the newsletters, if they like the blogs, uh, if they like Twitter and social media, there's so many ways to consume this information. And of course, the book, Firewall Stone Step Dragons, which you can find on Amazon.com. You can also find the link to that from my uh, website as well. So again, FirewallStoneStopDragons.com is the best way to get all this information. And doing these things does take time and effort. Um, so if you would like to help me in the cause in other ways uh, and become a patron, you can go to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. You can look for Firewall Stone Stop Dragons there as well. And uh, you can find more information about how you can help support me in this cause. All right. Thanks again for listening, everybody. And we'll be back again next week uh, with a very interesting interview with Marion Schneider, who is the president of Verified Voting. We're going to talk about how to protect our elections. Very, very crucial info and very timely. So tune in for that next week. And until then, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.